0: Morning. Another beautiful morning in Jackson Hole. It's a little lonely up here today. You might notice that it's just Susan and me. Uh, Jimmy and Brian are up in Cody at our annual convention. Um, I was there most of the weekend and scurried home yesterday so I could be here with you. Uh, worked out well because my son surprised me with a trip home from college and called me Thursday night at about 10:30 and said, "I'll see you in four hours, Mom." And I said, well, I'm in Cody, so. (laughs) But I got home in time to have dinner with him last night. Um, Travis was supposed to be up in Cody, and his uncle, Don, passed away this week, and so he took off for Texas. So here we are. And we have a baptism today, which I love. (coughs) Excuse me. So this is an interesting story this week. In some ways, it's a very simple story, But as usual, it's packed with meaning. Last week, we didn't hear the gospel for last week because we had blessing of the animals, but the gospel reading for last week was the story of the mustard seed. It was all about faith. And in the passage following this one, next week, what we'll look at, Jesus is asked when the kingdom of God will come, and he responds, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, oh, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. That is to say, the kingdom of God is a state of being, not a place, a new way of being in the world. And in these stories leading up to this big statement, Jesus is telling us about the nature of kingdom living. So, Jesus and his disciples and whoever, whatever followers they have picked up along the way are continuing their travels to Jerusalem passing through a region between Samaria and Galilee. As Jesus enters a village, 10 lepers approach him, although they didn't get too close because leprosy was thought to be very contagious. It wasn't a deadly disease as such, but because they didn't know how to treat it, it was chronic and increasingly debilitating. It remained for years, causing the skin tissues to degenerate and disfigure the body. According to religious law, lepers were supposed to wear torn garments and cover their mouths and as they walked down the street, cry out, unclean, whenever they were near others. It was humiliating and dehumanizing. The lepers in their great physical and emotional pain cry out to Jesus, mercy, master, have mercy on us. He hears them and he responds by simply saying, go and show yourselves to the priests. And if the story stopped there, we might think that he was sort of blowing them off. Not my problem. Go talk to the priests, right? But the next line tells us differently. As they went, they were made clean. Leprosy in biblical times was considered to be a punishment from God, a curse connected with faithlessness and sin. So when it says they were made clean, it implies more than the sores on their bodies but there is a cleansing of their souls. They are made right with God. Notice that there's very little interaction between the ten lepers and Jesus. They ask for mercy, and Jesus grants it. He doesn't ask them to prove that they're worthy, that they've ha- they have enough faith, or that they've tried to be good people. He simply sees their pain, and he heals them. Mercy and grace. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. At its simplest, this passage today is a beautiful story of the grace of God in offering mercy to those in pain. And like so many of Jesus' interactions, this story shows Jesus... Jesus' love for those living on the margins of society. But the story continues on as one of the lepers, who we learn is a Samaritan, realizes that he's been healed, and he stops, and he loudly proclaims the miracle that has occurred and praises God's glory. Then he prostrates himself at Jesus' feet and thanks him. Jesus asks, weren't 10 healed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Now we know from our conversations about the parable of the Good Samaritan that the Jews and the Samaritans are arch enemies. There's no love lost between them. But Luke very intentionally points out that the man who stops to thanks Jesus is a Samaritan. This aspect of the story is very similar to that of the parable of the, good, of the Samaritan man. As you recall, there was a man lying hurt in the ditch, and many people passed him by. But it was the Samaritan man who stops to help, without questioning who the man is who is in need. It's also a beautiful example of mercy and grace, coming from this very unexpected source. Likewise in this story, it is the foreigner, the person one might least expect, who stops to praise God and thank Jesus And so it is a story about opening our hearts to the unknown and to our enemies. And it's a simple parable of gratitude. Parents throughout Christendom, no doubt, have used this story to teach their children the importance of saying thank you. And yes, it feels great to be thanked. I'm sure even Jesus appreciated a kind thank you. But a thank you can can be and often is Very transactional. When I was a little girl, my grandmother, June, was a stickler for thanks-yous. Did any of you have that, grandmother? Every year on our birthday, she would send us an amount equal to the birthday. So on my 10th birthday, I got $10, and on my 12th birthday, I got $12, right? And I was expected to immediately write a thank-you note and put it in the mail as quickly as possible. If she'd not received that thank-you after about a week or so, I would hear from her. Trust me. And I understood even as a kid that she was trying to teach me a lesson in the importance of thank you notes. But it felt very transactional. I give you a gift, you return a thank you note. It was an obligation, and actually did very little to help me to feel true gratitude. But that wasn't her point. Her point was to teach me proper etiquette. I get that. Continuing on, when I was a freshman in college, My father remarried. Janet was very proper, like my grandmother June. She was also a great hostess. My father and Janet lived in a beautiful home in San Francisco, and they entertained a lot, and everything was always perfect. A beautiful home, gorgeous flowers on the table and candles, a lovely meal. And she was truly a wonderful hostess. And any time you went for dinner as you were leaving, Janet would give you a small gift, some small token always beautifully wrapped, maybe a pretty notebook or a pen, a little scarf, never anything too fancy or elaborate. As I was leaving, and I, I would always thank Janet for the lovely meal and give her a, a kiss on the cheek and a kind of awkward hug. And then she would hand me the gift, and I would thank her again. And that seemed like a sufficient completion of this particular transaction because that is what it always felt like, a transaction. I discovered once that Janet had a gift closet full of little gifts, all beautifully wrapped, ready to be given out as guests left. There was nothing personal about it, and I wondered what the purpose was. Was it hospitality? I remember one time in particular, I'd gone to dinner at their home with my boyfriend at the time, Matt, and Matt had very curly hair that kind of hair that really can't be tamed unless you cut it very short, right? Matt didn't. As we were leaving, Janet handed us each a gift, mine beautifully wrapped, and Matt's in a little gift bag, and and we thanked her. And when we got into the car, Matt opened his bag, and in it was a comb. (laughs) Not a fancy or nice, like a little black goodie comb, you know, the ones that you see, right? And Matt smiled and sort of shook his head and said, I'm not sure if I should be offended or, or what. I'm, I'm not really even sure what to do with this. <laughs> and then I said something like, well, it's the thought that counts. And we looked at each other and we just laughed, right? It was a little bit absurd, really. What was the thought behind that gift pulled from that gift closet? And with those dinners and gifts came obligation, From time to time, my dad would tell me that Janet was very upset because I hadn't sent a thank you note. My grandmother would have been horrified, I'm sure. I hadn't sent a thank you note following some dinner and gift at their home, and I would tell him that I felt no need to send a formal thank you for being invited to have dinner at my father's house. And so in my passive-aggressive rebellion, I simply refused to send a note. But the expectation that I send a thank you note for, not, for having dinner at my father's house made me feel unwelcome and not at all grateful or that I was part of their family. Dinner at my father's house became a chore and I went less and less often. It felt transactional. I do this for you, therefore you do that for me. And that's how it works. I was in my early twenties and didn't yet have the skills I needed to navigate this prickly relationship to understand what was driving Janet or my reaction to her. And it became this odd power play between us and a barrier in our relationship. And, of course, my poor dad stuck in the middle, right? It felt uncomfortable and like the opposite of hospitality or grace or gratitude. We live in a very transactional world. Capitalism, by its very nature, is transactional, right? You give me this item, and I give you this money. I give, it's a simple transaction. And many faith traditions, especially in our Christian tradition, are transactional in that way. If you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. It's a more complex transaction, but it's still a transaction, right? Right? So it's easy to fall into that trap. In my relationship with my stepmother, the transaction became a barrier to intimacy. And true relationship It became a stumbling point because she always, was always disappointed in me, and I resented her. As a more mature adult, I could probably have greater compassion and, for her and try to understand what was really going on, what she was feeling. But I didn't at that time and we were both defensive. It was a barrier to true intimacy, Janet's way of keeping me at arm's length and my way of accepting that space between us. But Jesus is not transactional. Like I said, I'm sure he appreciated that the leper thanked him. It feels good to be thanked, but he didn't heal the lepers in order to be thanked. I love when I stand outside the door at the end of the service and you thank me for my sermon. It feels good and feeds my ego, right, <laughs> when you say, thank you for your message today. It means the world to me, honestly. It makes me feel good, but I don't do it for the accolades. I stand up here and share my words and a little bit of my heart with the hope that I might touch your heart in some way. Whatever small way that I can do that is the point, not the thanks. Doing things for the sake of being thanked is not a motivation for the long haul. And resenting people when they don't give you thanks results in disaster, disappointment, family rifts, broken relationships, the joy of giving, gifts, your time, a meal is in the giving. And knowing that whether anyone ever says a thing, you have touched their lives in some way. Jesus knew that these 10 people had been changed Healed, cleansed, he didn't, have the, he didn't need to be thanked to understand the extraordinary impact his act had on their lives. The thank you wasn't the point. And when the Samaritan man prostrates himself at Jesus' feet and gives thanks, it is because his heart is overflowing with gratitude, and that f- he feels compelled to express that in some profound way. And Jesus responds not to his thank you, but to the way the Samaritan man glorified God. What seems to matter to Jesus is not so much being thanked as that loud and full-throated glorifying of God. He says, has no one returned to give praise to God, except for you, the foreigner? Now, we can't assume that the other nine were not also thankful. They probably were a little bit in shock, not really yet comprehending what had transpired. To suddenly be healed, they likely needed a little time for that to sink in, right? They're so used to suffering that they didn't recognize how they had been changed. But the Samaritan immediately recognized that somehow in this Galilean preacher and healer, God was acting in a new way. And he was transformed, not simply in the healing of his body, but something transformed his heart. And his heart is so overflowing with gratitude that he loudly praises God and prostrates himself at Jesus' feet. And Jesus' response, rise and go, your faith has made you well. The man was healed, as were the other nine. They have been healed, cleansed, and we know that at least one of them has been truly transformed by the experience, body and soul. The one who returned, the one who realized however vaguely who Jesus was, the one who praised God, who recognized the mercy and grace of God in this action, Jesus tells us that it was his faith, not his gratitude that saved him. A truly whole person has a faith characterized by joy and gratitude and an overflowing heart. Fully formed faith brings a new freedom that gives one a relationship with God that goes beyond the dynamics of obedience. Thank you cards. It's not transactional, but transformational. This passage is about caring for the marginalized, certainly. This passage is about mercy and grace, yes. This passage is about changed expectations from our enemies. This passage is about gratitude. But most importantly, it is about opening ourselves to the transformational love of the divine. It is about allowing our hearts to be changed with the knowledge that we are already healed and cleansed and loved. It is about allowing God's mercy, grace, and love to transform our hearts. So thank you, truly. Amen. Amen.